Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is a podcast extra from Nature. I'm Kerry Smith. Every day when we wake up, we experience a transition. One minute we're asleep, unconscious, we don't follow commands. It's as if there's nobody home. The next we're aware of our circumstances, our surroundings. We can respond. It's night and day. But some people, because of injury or accident, end up in a grey zone between these conscious and unconscious states. In a minimally conscious state, say, where sometimes patients can signal their awareness through the fog, but sometimes it's as if they're not there. Or in a persistent vegetative state, where a patient might look like they're awake, maybe they open their eyes, but they're unaware. Neuroscientist Adrian Owen has dedicated his career to finding out what's going on in the brain when a patient gets trapped in the grey zone. And shockingly, in as much as 20% of patients who appear to be entirely vegetative, the brain responds to instructions, just like the brain of a healthy person. Adrian has written a book about his work, and we sat down in the studio to dig into it. For most of us, meeting someone who's in a vegetative state or a minimally conscious state is, is something that is quite hard to imagine. And presumably, you know, it had to happen to you for the first time as well. Um, what was that experience like? It was very strange, actually. It was uh, 1997 and it was a patient at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge uh, who came to us in a vegetative state. And this was, you know, really early days. And the idea of putting somebody like that into, into a brain scanner to see what was going on was... Um, Frankly, bonkers, but we tried it uh, on, you know, on, a, on a bit of a whim, and, and amazingly, her brain activated. She was she was the first patient to respond in that way, and it really started this this whole story. Tell me a little bit more about her. She was a school teacher from Cambridge. Her name was Kate, and she'd had um, rather an unusual uh, virus that had a- attacked the white matter of her brain, and this had, had sent her into a coma initially. And then she emerged into a, into a vegetative state, which means that her eyes opened, and she would look around the room, but not not fixate on anything. And she appeared to have no awareness of, of who she was or where she was, and, and uh, the predicament that that she was in. And my colleague David Menon uh, at Adam Brooks and I decided we would 
scan her and show her pictures of uh, her friends and family. And again, I don't think either of us really believed this was going to work. Um, the idea was to see whether we could produce any activity in her brain because this had never been done in a vegetative state patient before. And sure enough, her fusiform gyrus lit up, and that's the part of the brain that's involved in perceiving and recognising faces. And her uh, brain responded just as yours or mine would in, in the same situation. It must have been crazy to see that response. It was crazy, and you know, to be to be really honest, we had no idea what it what it meant back then. Uh, you know, did it mean that she could actually experience uh, faces? Was she having a an experience of seeing the faces, or, or was her brain just responding automatically to to the, the familiar images? We really had no idea, but it was it was exciting nonetheless. And how did you then make the decision to carry on doing work like this? Because it's not easy, is it, to get hold of... This is a very small sample of patients that you could even work with. Yeah, it was a strange thing because we had no... Back then we had no funding to do this um, because nobody thought it was a very good idea, I suppose. And we really just waited around for the, you know, the, another patient to come in. And it was all very much done... Um, on a bit of a shoestring, and and we, you know, with 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 whatever funding we had available, sometimes for, for other projects, and it was actually a couple of years before another vegetative patient came along, and um, we put her into the scanner, and on, on that occasion, we decided to play her speech, and sure enough, as had been the case with Kate, the second patient, activated. Uh, in response to speech sounds, this time uh, parts of her temporal lobe that we know are involved in speech perception. Just luck or did you think at the time, oh my God, every patient who's in a minimally conscious state might be conscious in some way? Yeah, well, I think by that point I was starting to realise that this was going to be much more common than anybody ever thought was possible. I mean, I think there are there are many people who have always assumed that some of these patients could retain islands of of cognitive function, if you like. I don't think anybody thought we were going to find what we went on to find. But the the fact that, you know, the first two patients had responded so positively really gave me the sense that, you know, this was going to be something that was far more frequent than had been previously assumed. With the first patient, you looked at whether she could, whether her brain was responding to faces, now to speech. But does that mean that this person is consciously experiencing any of these things? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I mean, I, I refer to these things as the as the sort of building blocks of consciousness. Obviously, that they're they're all necessary. But whether just having them alone means you are conscious or not is actually a question that we wrestled with for the best part of the next ten years, because we we went on to just to show that some of these patients could produce all all sorts of different responses. But they were all things that could be automatic. I mean, speech perception is a great example. You can't choose not to hear what you're hearing right now as a speech. You, you can't choose not to understand it either. It's something that your brain is doing automatically, whether you like it or not. Then you needed a test of consciousness, which <laughs> is with some hubris. Uh... Oh, that part was very easy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that was the real, the real turning point was when we, we sort of went back to the drawing board around 2005, 2006 and said, well, you know, what, what would we have to see in a patient's brain for us to be convinced that they were conscious and really we, we looked at the, the way that consciousness is, is assessed clinically and I'm sure everybody listening to this has seen a, a TV medical drama where a, a doctor has asked a patient to squeeze their hand if you can hear me and 
what what you're what the, what a doctor is looking for there is uh, is 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 um, a sign of command following a response to command and we realize that uh, in order to believe that a, a, a patient who was apparently vegetative was, was actually aware and conscious, we would need some kind of response to command. So we switched to a different type of idea where we, where we asked patients to do things with their brain. We said, well, if you can hear us, think this. And we got them to think various things that we knew were associated with patterns of activity in the brain that we could detect. And it wasn't like this task, just, uh, you know, the first one you picked came to you and worked perfectly, was it? I mean, what kind of iterations did you go to? What tasks didn't really work so well and what did you settle on? We tried many things. Uh, I mean, one of the the first and I, I suppose obvious things based on, on the work we had done previously was to get people to imagine faces. We thought well, if we could just get them to imagine faces of their, their loved ones, uh, we might see activation in the, in the fusiform gyrus as we had with Kate. You know, in some people that is the case. Um, some people who can who have have good skills in imagery can produce activity like this, but it just wasn't reliable enough. It was you know, something like half the number of healthy participants that we tried could could do it. Uh, another early idea we had was to get people to sing in their heads. We thought that's pretty easy, you know, sing, sing nursery rhymes or Christmas carols. Again, it works in some people some of the time, but it, it's not accurate enough. And it was then that we sort of, uh, I guess, hit upon our what has remained, I guess, our gold standard idea, was to get, which was to get people to imagine playing tennis because it turns out that imagining sort of vigorous arm movements, the sorts of things you would do if you were playing uh, a game of tennis, produces a very reliable activation in the premotor cortex and the part of the brain that we know is involved in planning movements and thinking about movements. So you tried this out on healthy participants and made sure that, you know, almost 100% of them could reliably do this and that you saw the same activation in their brains when they did it. And then you tried it with someone in a vegetative state. That must have been nerve-wracking. Uh, it was, yes. It was, um, well, it was exciting, really, rather than nerve-wracking. Um, she was a woman who'd been involved in um, uh, a road traffic accident. She was a pedestrian who'd, who'd been hit by uh, two cars while crossing the road, and she'd been in a vegetative state for some months. What's, what's, again, remarkable about her as a patient is that she was the first person we tried this in. Um, we didn't sort of tee her up for any reason other than we thought we'd got the task right. We knew what we were doing. We were ready. And she was the next patient that, that came through the door at Adambrooks. Uh, and amazingly, uh, whenever we asked her to imagine playing tennis, her premotor cortex would light up just as yours or mine would. And whenever we asked her to, to just relax, the activity would, would disappear. And she could do this repeatedly. It was really quite extraordinary. Did it change how people on the ward who were caring for her responded to her? To know uh, that she had this inner life. I would say um, that's always the case. In all of the patients that we've seen, you know, when we've revealed, if you like, or, or found out that actually there's more going on, even if we don't know that they're conscious, but they have some residual cognitive function, it generally does result in them being treated really quite differently. And I think, you know, that's the most important message to, to come out of this, this whole body of work. You know, what you see is not what's really there. You used the tennis task next, having proved that it worked and that you could, could show that there was this interactivity and this form of consciousness in, in some patients in a vegetative state. You then thought, well, can we go further? Can we use this to get them to answer questions, to communicate with us? Yeah, I mean, that was a real, for me, 
I knew that the real clincher, if you like, would, would be if we could actually communicate with somebody. In a sense, if somebody could tell us that they were conscious. We took two tasks. We took the tennis task and then a, another imagery task that had, that had been working very well, which was to get people to imagine walking from room to room in their house. The important point is it produces a very different pattern of activity than imagining playing tennis. So we sort of had two tasks, two patterns of activity, and we set about asking patients to imagine one of those things to say yes, say play tennis to, to, to think yes, and imagine walking around your house to, to convey a, a no. And again, uh, and, you know, it worked it worked like a charm. We've been very lucky in this journey, I would say. Um, we came across a patient uh, uh, in Belgium uh, who was being seen by my, my uh, colleague over there, Stephen Lorris. We established using the tennis task that you know, he was aware, and then uh, we very quickly went on to start asking him yes and no questions. And we, we asked him things that we couldn't possibly know the answer to, which we could then go and verify with the family. And that, of course, provided some some absolute assurance that, that we really were decoding what he was signalling with his brain because we were coming up with answers that we, we couldn't have possibly known had he not told us. Did you ask him anything that you kind of had a burning desire to know? Uh, I mean, at that point, really, we were just concerned with, you know, can we make this work? Can we communicate with a, a patient? Um, there was one other question which we didn't we didn't um, go into any detail in the, in the publication at the time, which we, we did actually go on and ask him whether he wanted to continue living in this situation. Uh, and it's interesting, looking back at the data, it's the one question that we couldn't we couldn't accurately decode the information. Um, and you know, at the time, we didn't know what it meant. We thought, well, perhaps he'd fallen asleep. It was the very last question we asked. We thought, well, perhaps he'd fallen asleep or lost his concentration. And actually, now having done this in in many patients and being quite sort of used to how the answers come in, I can see that it, it's probably because there isn't a simple yes and no answer, right? If you know, if, if you ask somebody, well, do you want to uh, carry on living in this situation? probably the answer you're going to come up with is, well, it depends what the alternative is. Um, are you going to cure me within five years? Or do you, do you have a drug around the corner that's going to get me out of this? There's sort of lots of aspects to the question, do you want to go on living like this, that can't be answered with a simple yes or a no. And I, I imagine that's probably what was going on for him at the time. But, of course, we were so ahead of ourselves, and this is the first time we'd ever done any, anything like this, we, we just really didn't think it through. And we are now much more specific about the way that we question patients, in, especially with issues like that. How do you feel, because obviously you're not part of the primary care team for these patients, you're coming in as the scientists and researching um, the questions that you have, and, and then often you know, leaving again a short time later, you're not having a great deal of kind of recurrent contact with them. How does that feel to kind of establish contact, see a level of awareness and then have to leave? In the early days, um, it was actually quite hard because we would literally, or I would literally lose contact with the patient. They would often come to Cambridge from far away from you know, other hospitals because of the specialist care at, at Cambridge. Uh, and then they would you know disappear to the the other hospitals, and I, I would, I would really completely lose track of them. Um, one, I mean, one of the reasons that I, I moved to Canada to, to take up the position I have is that um, you know it came with a substantial amount of funding that's enabled me to, 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 to put a, pro, a whole program in place where we follow patients. We don't let anybody disappear. Your work's had quite a lot of publicity over the years. Do you ever get the, the sense that families and relatives of patients that you meet are expecting 
too much now of 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 their relative who finds themselves in a, in a vegetative state. Actually, I think I think that's a really good question, and and um, the answer is is no. Maybe maybe that surprises you. I spend a lot of time with the families of patients that come to see us, and you know I I, I don't have the impression that they come to us. Want, expecting us to show that their relatives are conscious. In fact, they're driven by something far different. They're, they're driven by a need to do everything they possibly can. And I, and, I, and I know that because, you know, often I have to deliver bad news to families and say, well, we, we find no evidence that your, your relative is aware, no cognitive responses at all. And in general, the, the response to that is also quite positive. It, it's, you know, they're obviously not happy about it. But I think they go away thinking, well, you know, we went the extra mile. We put our son, our daughter, our brother or sister on a aircraft, sometimes flew them across Canada, took them to this research centre, put them in a scanner. And, you know, we've done absolutely everything we possibly could. There's a strand in the book that's very bittersweet because you talk about um, close personal experience of this very situation. Uh, yeah, the, the book... Um, begins by talking about a, uh, an ex-partner of mine who had a brain aneurysm. Um, we were no longer together, but she, she had a brain aneurysm, and um, that led to her uh, being in a, in a vegetative state. And it's interesting that at the time I was really working in a, in a completely different area. I'm not even sure I, I knew what a vegetative state was at that point. Uh, I think that sort of really introduced me to the idea that um, you could be in this sort of awake state, uh, I think I didn't probably know the difference between a coma and a vegetative state back then. And coma patients look like they're asleep, but you know, importantly, these vegetative patients open their eyes and they look like they're awake. And uh, this was the case with my um, my former partner. And uh, so when Kate came along about a year later, I, I sort of knew I'd seen it before, if you like, through this sort of personal. Um, experience, and I think in, in many ways, you know, if if I hadn't had that experience of having a friend, you know, in that situation, perhaps I would have never bothered putting Kate into the scanner or never showed any any interest. And then, of course, as I was putting the final pieces of the book together, she died almost twenty years uh, after she'd had the accident. What now? Are your burning research questions. What are you really hoping to resolve about brains in a minimally conscious state? Right, right now. I mean, it may be over the next decade rather than, you know, very specific questions. Uh, well, I think you've touched on it there, actually. And what, one of the really key things for me is, you know, what does it mean to be in a minimally conscious state? And, um, and this is a, you know, it's a big issue because many patients that we used to think of as being a vegetative state are now relabeled as being minimally conscious. But none of us really know what that means. Does that mean you're uh, semi-conscious all the time, sort of half asleep and half awake? Or does it mean that you're fully conscious some of the time and fully unconscious some of the time? We really have very little idea what it actually means to be minimally conscious. So I'm very keen to to map these these cognitive states, to work out for every patient, what is it like to be you? You know, we're getting a bit philosophical here, but I think these are the sorts of questions about consciousness that I'm really interested in, in tackling. And they, they've really been only made interesting to me but by, uh, by some of the patients that, that I describe in the book. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or 
anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.